0: to dealer
1: national security this week a weekly look at american national security issues and now your host john olson good morning everyone and welcome to national security this week i'm your host john olson every wednesday at 9 a.m we get together here on kymn radio to discuss national security We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in American national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my best to find experts who can address your topic. So for today, we're turning again to European Security Policy Challenges. We started that line of discussion a few weeks ago when we had Charlie Salonius Pasternak, a researcher at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, on our show And we'll continue that discussion right now. Our guest this morning is Heather Conley, who's Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic, and the Director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at the Center for International and Strategic Studies. Prior to joining CSIS as, as a Senior Fellow and Director for Europe in 2009, Conley served four years as Executive Director of the Office of the Chairman of the Board at the American National Red Cross. From 2001 to 2005, she was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs with responsibilities for U.S. bilateral relations with the countries of Northern and Central Europe. Heather Conley is frequently featured as a foreign policy analyst and Europe expert on CNN, MSNBC, BBC, National Public Radio, and PBS, among many other prominent media outlets. Heather Conley received her Bachelor of Arts in International Studies from West Virginia Wesleyan College. And our Master of Arts in International Relations from the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, or SAIS, or SAIS. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, Johns Hopkins SAIS is probably the best international relations program in the nation. So we have a, a well-trained uh, foreign policy expert with us. So Heather Connolly, welcome to National Security This Week.
0: Well, John, it's great to be here. I'm very biased about size too, so I, I fully support your views on that. Thank you so much for that really kind introduction.
1: So I'm very lucky to have uh, have you on with us uh, this week because uh, you have been in incredibly high demand. Uh, I mentioned that uh, that you're a frequent guest on on NPR and PBS, and I actually saw your interview on uh, the PBS News Hour on Monday evening, and I heard you on National Public Radio yesterday morning talking, talking about the. Uh, the Biden trip for the NATO summit, the EU uh, uh, economic discussions, and certainly for today's summit between President uh, Biden and, and, uh, and Vladimir Putin.
0: Well, it's been a busy time. Your timing is great. It's impeccable. I jokingly tell my staff, this is like our Super Bowl. Uh, the President's uh, visit uh, to the UK, starting with the US-UK and now ending in Geneva with the summit with uh, President Putin, we're, we're giving our program and our research a good run, run for its money. So I'm really glad to be with you. Thank you so much.
1: So if we could, let's just start today uh, with a topic that I, I think a lot of people are really curious about. Uh, we know know that the uh, the Biden-Putin summit is happening right now as we speak on this radio show. It's happening over in Geneva. Uh, what do you think they're talking about this morning?
0: Well, wow, this is going to be a long meeting. I mean, they're they're setting it to be somewhere between four and five hours. Now, part of that is because of translation. Uh, they're going to have two, two meetings in some ways. The first, uh, which is happening right now now a more intimate setting uh with president biden and president putin and then their foreign ministers secretary of state tony blinken and then uh, sergey lavrov of, of russia then they'll expand that to a, a broader uh meeting uh, with five aides on each side the list is really long john i mean we have an a huge issue, uh, a set of issues of, of contestation with Russia. I mean, just beginning with the last few weeks and these uh, cyber attacks and yeah. ransomware. These are c- Russian criminal groups that are are, are basing these cyber attack uh, from Russian territory. We have certainly seen their impact, the colonial pipelines. If you're living on the East Coast, you had some run on some gas stations. Uh, and so uh, we've seen the the government sanctioned espionage attacks and that was, of course, the whole solar winds cyber. So cyber is going to feature very, very uh, predominantly arms control. Um, the Russian and American presidents extended by five years the New START Treaty. That treaty was negotiated in 2010, and it limits uh, the number of nuclear warheads and delivery systems that each country can provide. We have to get very busy on a future arms control uh, negotiation and architecture for a lot of sophisticated weaponry that Russia is certainly uh, putting into place. They're going to talk about climate. Uh, They're going to talk about probably Afghanistan, Iran, the Iran nuclear agreement. But we've got such a long list of issues about (laughs) Russian aggression and behavior. Ukraine. Belarus, inside Russia, Alexei Navalny, the the Russian uh, opposition leader who's been jailed, nearly lost his his life because of uh, poisoning. So huge issues, Uh, not a huge expectation for outcome, quite frankly. Um, President Putin uh, certainly is pocketing this summit. He wants to stand... Right beside the American president, that parody is so important. We just gave him a huge platform in Geneva. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, President Biden believes that if we do this, if we give him sort of that platform, what we're asking for is predictability. Now, that's a gamble. And we will see if Mr. Putin (laughs) will take the respect and give us the predictability. And we won't know that
1: for quite some time. Right, right. Uh, so I want to maybe follow up on some of those uh, topics as we go through our discussion this morning. But uh, I, I want to jump into our, to our discussions today, starting with the fact that uh, you had service in a very senior leadership position at the Department of State. And I mentioned in the inter- introduction that you were Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, and your focus was on Northern and Central Europe. Uh, can you say more about what that particular position entailed?
0: Oh, well, thank you. Well, and I have to say, my first day in the office was supposed to be September the eleventh two thousand and one. I came in the next day, uh, and so the you know the job everyone thought I would have changed uh, very dramatically, but it was such a awesome privilege to serve my country at that moment. So my responsibility was uh, for u s bilateral relations with 15 countries Uh, so the Nordic countries the Baltic states and then Central Europe from Poland all the way to Romania and Bulgaria the timing of my tenure was so incredible because uh, the United States with our NATO allies had to make a really big decision about expanding uh, enlarging NATO to bring in those three Baltic states to bring in our Central European colleagues Um, and I will tell you 9-11 transition Transformed that conversation. We needed uh, our allies and partners to be with us. Of course, Central Europe, the Baltic states wanted to demonstrate uh, that they could immediately be of assistance to us uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, And it was a very, it was an extraordinary moment, you know, interestingly about Russia. Uh, the Baltic States, obviously, a very sensitive issue. There are ethnic Russian populations, uh, particularly within Estonia and Latvia, but that enlargement was, uh, you know, preceded. Uh, and today, um, NATO forces, U.S. forces, sitting in Poland, are protecting. That's the new front line of freedom. Right. So I felt very, uh, very proud to be part of a larger government effort to bring freedom and prosperity to 100 million people europe but but make no mistake about it you know those those lines are now drawn once again yeah. between russia and nato and that's very much what the part of the conversation was at the nato summit uh, this week in brussels
1: so you were in that senior senior leadership position uh what kind of leadership lessons do you think you learned in in those years uh, that you were at state
0: oh gosh thank you what a wonderful question so i am i am so honored that i served under secretary of state colin powell and deputy deputy secretary of state richard armitage um, two individuals uh, who just ooze leadership (laughs) and management uh, and you know it just just pounded into us do the right thing uh you know interagency uh, debates are legend and there's always a sort of the Washington game of who's who's winning you know is the Pentagon ascendant is the National Security Council ascendant is the State Department how are they doing you know we go in there with with arguments with fact we need to be right and we may not win the interagency debate but we are in the we are in the scrum we' are in the arena and as I said it was such a privilege to serve at that moment for our country because we need all of our partners and allies to support the United States in Afghanistan. It was the first time in NATO's history that Article 5, that, that that sacred article where an attack against one ally is an attack against all, was used never in our wildest dreams. Yeah. When the NATO treaty was signed in 1949, that we ever thought that would come to the aid of the United States. We always thought that would come to the aid of our European NATO allies. It was amazing. Cracking down on terrorist financing, rooting out those terrorists. We had to do that with our allies. And the countries that I had the privilege of looking after and strengthening our bilateral relationship were absolutely essential uh, to to uh, America's response to that overwhelming challenge. Was it easy? No. Were there deep divisions? Yes. Are those divisions still being felt today? Yes. Uh, but uh, you know, service isn't easy. Uh, but we are in it for the long haul and you have to invest in our allies they're invested in us and we know when we are separated from our allies we can do it alone we have enormous power but it's not um, the place we want to be because our comparative advantage uh, america's great strength is this mighty alliance system that stretches from europe to asia that's our great inheritance and it can be a challenge it it is expensive uh, of course but when that thing works we can, you know, confront challenges like China, like Russia, like Iran, like North Korea. And that's how we solve big problems.
1: Yeah, I, I often comment on uh, the, the education that I had at the Naval War College uh, when we studied uh, Thucydides and uh, the Peloponnesian War. And if you study that, <laughs> you can understand the importance of alliances and how treating your allies uh, if you're the the superpower. Uh, is so very important to your long-term uh, strategic well-being. Uh, so let, let me continue on. So you're at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, what What is the overall mission at, uh, at CSIS?
0: You know, everyone's like, what is a think tank? <laughs> what in the world? And uh, one of my colleagues says, you know, sometimes we put the tank in think tanks. I so think of that, you know, that big uh, army tank coming your way. So um, CSIS is a uh, bipartisan institution. So we don't have a political persuasion. In fact, we really pride ourselves that we are sort of like Switzerland. We're neutral territory. We want to bring all the stakeholders together to to focus on complex challenges. Um, we actually we came out of a, an academic background. We were birthed actually as part of Georgetown University uh, in 1962, the heart of the Cold War, and we needed deep and long-term strategic thinking. Um, we Then we sort of parted ways with the academic institution uh, and became a separate entity. Um, and, but really the, the, the key pillar at CSIS, uh, we are you know, international security, as our name suggests, is sort of the heart of, of what we do. But when you look at international, what security means today, we have over 30 programs that look at health security, food security, energy security uh some of our largest programs are looking at um economics trade prosperity so really that this security dynamic is so much larger and more complex than just thinking about again how many tanks uh are are certainly sitting on on a border so i run a a very large regional program and we look after europe uh and russia and eurasia and you know we span to the arctic to to the eastern mediterranean um, and we are just one program of 30 plus programs at csis so my day i could i testify. I, before I speak to the media, uh, we do research, we write reports, um, I speak to a lot of uh, foreign governments, uh, leaders, uh, opinion makers, um, and we try to think long-term and strategic to make sure the U.S. is prepared for all of our future challenges.
1: Yeah, and I actually had uh, the J2, the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, on uh, the show uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Rear Admiral Mike uh, Studeman, and we actually talked about this importance of sort of re, re, reframing what, what America has to worry about today. And it's really the long-term strategic challenge. We have to shift to a, a fundamentally different way of thinking about uh, sort of the, the, the way the world order is shaping up these days.
0: Absolutely. Now, the international system is is in profound transition right now. Uh, And I think that's that's where what you're seeing, sort of this this understanding of, of the purpose of U.S. leadership globally how do we use our allies how do we confront uh challenges like economic coercion um, malign influence how do you how do you address that how do you address climate um and and it is it's challenging every national security leader to deal with this complexity stay focused stay calm stay confident but but you know we we have a challenge ahead of us there is no doubt (laughs)
1: Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Heather Conley, a Senior Vice President at the Center for International and Strategic Studies. Uh, So Heather, let's get into our our European security policy discussions, and maybe we can start with this. What do you think are the top three security challenges uh, facing Europe today?
0: Well, I would certainly say uh, Russia is the most uh, immediate uh, security challenge uh, to, I would say, to the United States and to to NATO as well. Again, And getting back the long list that uh, President Biden uh, will be raising with with President Putin, because uh, in many ways, you know, the Cold War, we had a set of rules both sides understood that those rules created some stability Um, we don't have those rules anymore and uh, you sort of add cyber uh, dimension to that Um, the information space uh, which the Russians are certainly trying to dominate um, it's really really tough Russia is certainly the most significant uh, risk to European security and as I said all the, the issues that they bring with that so whether it's you know, nuclear weapons, you know, intermediate-range weapons, a lot of testing that they're doing on new weapons systems, Um, you know, the coercion of, you know, NATO allies internally, you know, use of political parties, social media, just trying to enhance division uh, within our countries and between uh, America's allies, that's a, a massive challenge. Uh, the second uh, challenge, I would say, to the long term, and this is more of a security challenge to the United States, but Europe is going to be is an essential player in this, and that's China, uh, and that's again really what President Biden was trying to accomplish, whether that was at the G7 summit through NATO and even the U.S. European Union summit, trying to make sure our European allies understand that China poses a long-term strategic re- risk to to all democracies, and how can we work together uh, to, to, to manage that. So those that strategic competition, that's how we framed our national security strategy, our international security strategy, as well as our upcoming national defense strategy, is that, that strategic um, competition. So I think the third issue is really... Uh, a um, certain parcel of, of addressing the Russia and China challenge set, is that's that that is the stability and the health of our own democracies and our own economic structures. You know, I we see uh, Europe's weakness um, technologically, economically, Unfortunately, they've allowed their defense and military capabilities to atrophy. Um, This is coming home to them, whether it's the migration crisis, whether it's terrorism inside their countries, that they really do need to uh, increase their defense spending. We are seeing uh, good results. They're just slower (laughs) than what we would (laughs) hope, and we've got a long way to go. And I would say equally, uh, you know, about America's consistent and credible approach to its allies i think the biggest thing that president biden was trying to do uh, during his sweep to europe his trip was to try to regain the trust of our allies Uh, in europe as well as in in asia uh, we had a very different approach to allies the last four years as i said allies are difficult they are are an investment. You have to believe in their value, um, and and we lost faith in that value. And we've some benefit for for these alliances. I I, I can talk for an hour about all the benefits um, but we have to sort of strengthen ourselves our democracies um, we have seen the real challenges here in the united states we see those similar challenges in europe so we have to get strong and healthy ourselves and that way we're much better in a much better place to be able to be more competitive uh, with future challenges whether they come from climate russia china migration you name it
1: so if I could, I'd like to follow up on a couple of things that, that you mentioned and, and offer up uh, a couple of things that hopefully hopefully you can sort of uh, clarify for us. So on Russia and on the democratic stability uh, front, uh, we know that uh, Lukashenko in, in Belarus is sort of – he's basically a Putin puppet at this point, I, I, <laughs> I think is a fair way to say it uh, – what, what do you think is happening inside Belarus, and, and uh, what are the ramifications of Lukashenko ordering uh, the Ryanair flight uh, to land <laughs> and, and capture his political uh, uh, opponent? I mean, what, yes. what's the impact yep. there on, uh, from a European perspective?
0: I'm so glad you asked about Belarus. So uh, just to, to go back just very briefly. So last uh, August, August 9th, Belarus held a presidential election um, in which uh, Alexander Lukashenko has been the, you know, has been the leader of Belarus since 1994. He's one of the uh, longest-serving leaders, affectionately, uh, I'm joking, known as the last dictator of Europe. Um, and you know, he was very adept at um, making sure that there was no meaningful opposition. Again, these these elections, and I sort of put these in air quotes as i'm telling you about an election um were pretty you know usually managed well but this time because of uh, his incredibly poor uh lack of handling the covid crisis he didn't believe it and it was devastating um standard of living has been going down there was actually uh, his usual tactics to end the belarusian opposition throw them in jail or push them out it it didn't work because the wives of the these opposite figures came together and they actually created a a strong force. He could no longer sort of uh, reorganize, if you will, uh, the the pieces of the puzzle to reaffirm his legitimacy and he, he encountered huge protests. He has is, he is, uh, cracked down on those protests to a point of basically extinguishing any meaningful opposition. And and Mr. Putin uh, came right to his aid because he fears the same forces in his own country. Yeah. So what we're seeing is um, both Belarus and Russia now employing some of the most repressive tactics that we, we haven't seen these even during the darkest days as I said, using military-grade nerve poisoning, nerve agent to kill or disable and harm Russian opposition picture, figures like Alexei Navalny. Mm-hmm. And exactly right, this brazen uh, air hijacking of taking a civilian flight that was going from Athens to, to uh, Vilnius, uh, Lithuania, basically forcing a pilot to turn around landing in belarus in minsk and they took off a 26 year old and his girlfriend who were blogging and, and organizing a lot of these protests it's outrageous uh, but mr putin is standing by his man mr lukashenko and they're they're you know unfortunately swapping tips on how to be more repressive and and um this is an issue where the u.s and the european union working together uh sanctioning belarus West sanctions uh, but sanctions only really impact uh, are meaningful when they really hit uh, the pockets of mr. Lukashenko sanctions aren't too too powerful so this is this is the conundrum that we are going to face uh, with Russia we're facing it in Ukraine uh, this hot war that never ended in 2014 14,000 Uh, killed, uh, 1.5 million displaced. I mean, these are very active conflicts that we we tend to ignore. They drop on the agenda. But Russia is using them to to certainly make sure there is a clear buffer between Russia and the West. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people would like a little choice in there. And it's getting harder and harder to suppress the people's desire for change and
1: choice. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you uh, you brought up the Ukraine situation. Uh, I know that the Russians had been massing forces on the uh, Russia-Ukraine border, and that was not looking good for a while there. Uh, and and I think it's still, I think there's still quite a few Russian forces on the border with Ukraine. So we'll see what happens.
0: Well, John, that was one of the reasons. That was the impetus, in part, for the summit in Geneva. Uh, Russia mobilized upwards of 110,000 forces on the Ukrainian border and within uh, annexed Crimea, we weren't sure what that was doing. Um, and which is what prompted uh, a lot of phone calls between our uh, chairman of Joint chief General Milley, uh, as well as his Russian counterpart general Gerasimov uh, it was it was frightening now they have removed some of some of the forces there's a lot of equipment that's still parked there and we have a major military Russian military exercise that will happen in the fall called zapad uh and we're about to see a lot a lot of russian forces in belarus they already have a lot of staging and and, and facilities there um and so we we need to be very concerned again the outcome of this summit is supposed to be stable and predictable well watching this upcoming russian military exercise i'm not entirely sure we're going to see stable and predictable but we'll keep our eye on it
1: right let uh, right. Let's uh, let's shift over to a couple of other issues. You, you'd mentioned climate change uh, er- earlier in your discussions. Um, and I know that you are an expert, in fact, on climate driven impacts to national security. Uh, how well are the or how I should say, how are the Europeans responding to the impacts of climate change from a from a security perspective, maybe from an economic perspective as well?
0: Well, I, I think we have to give a lot of credit to our European colleagues because they have been very consistent in and raising climate change is uh, one of their most pressing national security challenges, and and I think we now that this is going to profoundly challenge all countries, um, and uh, you know needing to make sure we have not only the right. Climate mitigation policies to try to slow down these impacts, uh, but then to begin to reorient our own economies away from uh, fossil fuel dependency. This is this is a massive shift in the international system. These so-called energy transitions. Europe has been a leader in in, in its ambitions and trying to reach carbon neutrality. Um, you know, they're, they they were one of the first to talk about the a Green Deal, um, and so. What they're talking about now is putting a price on carbon. This is some concern to to U.S. leadership uh, as well, and it's certainly starting to panic the Russian leadership because if you can imagine imposing (laughs) a carbon border adjustment tax, well, uh, a massive export to Europe is Russian uh, oil and gas, as we know from uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, more, yeah. more fossil fuel exports so that could be really uh, transformative so any of the, the energy producing countries like Russia like Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan Kazakhstan, these energy dependent countries if we could see a future in the next 10 to 15 years of e- either a decarbonized economy or dramatic reduction in fossil fuel use you are talking about massive transformation of, of their economies just looking at russia uh they speak about the benefits of, of climate change particularly right. in the arctic right. new shipping routes the northern yeah. sea route new energy production minerals fishing they are always celebrating the benefit but they are suffering uh the the dramatic cost permafrost thaw coastal right. erosion yeah. i mean their buildings are literally breaking apart pipelines, cracking uh, uh, fuel storage, collapsing, causing catastrophic environmental damage, they're also suffering from the effects. And that impacts all of us because the methane and greenhouse gas emission release from permafrost thaw impacts the world, Um, as the Greenland ice sheet uh, melts, that is sea level rise, that, and we know the Arctic is warming three times faster than any place on the planet. So while there are economic opportunities to climate, indeed, the challenges are are massive as well. So we will see how Russia manages a huge amount of change for a government that only wants to prevent any change from happening. So those two forces are about to collide.
1: Uh, so we also know that climate change has been uh, driving changes to human migration patterns. And over the past uh, number of years, Europe has seen mass migration of refugees from the Middle East and North Africa. And that's not just from the conflicts; that's from the the climate change, the the heavy weather impacts, drought, really, in in much of the the food uh, production areas in in the Middle East and North Africa. And those migration trends, uh, you know, are they likely to continue? And how do you think those migration trends will impact? eu security policy they've they've really had to deal with some some tough challenges some tough humanitarian challenges over the past five six years
0: well you're right john and this is where uh, both the united states and europe understand uh the impact of migration uh through conflict through climate um uh, and poverty uh we understand this is a massive national secure that we can manage these migration flows uh, to the best of our ability this is particularly challenging for europe uh, because they cannot come to agreement on on a migration policy they've certainly tried for the last six years um but they have failed, and and the southern again. This sounds familiar, just like in the United States. Right. The southern states bear the brunt of of the migration uh, challenge. So do southern Europe, Italy, Greece, mm-hmm. Spain. Um, they are receiving uh, migrants. Uh, through the across the mediterranean some are using land routes from turkey through greece and what europe has been trying to do is stop all of that but then they do have just as we do on our border the humanitarian crisis right. these are our young people um children you see these devastating pictures of loss of life in the, in the mediterranean but there is no political solution and the politics of migration, again, as we know so well in our own country, uh, feeds uh, the most extreme political voices, uh, which makes government action as well as political stability uh, a little challenging. It's certainly... Uh, impacted Italian politics, which are always rambunctious, but very uh, it's, a, it's a very big issue. Uh, it, it really roils um, the entire uh, European political spectrum. So this is a massive issue. You, you'll ask a European, what is their biggest security challenge? I, of course, listed where I thought their greatest security challenges was. The first thing they'll say is migration, and they'll say Africa. Yeah. Um, and it's because they know this is a source of great instability to them politically, certainly, but as well instability that could come if they cannot manage their borders well
1: yeah Uh, so for our audience you're listening to kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 this is national security this week and i'm your host john olson our guest today is heather conley a senior vice president at the center for international strategic studies Uh, so heather you mentioned china uh, so let's turn to the eu policies toward china uh, we know that uh, President Biden just met with both our NATO allies and the EU nations uh, on Monday and Tuesday, and China figured prominently in those discussions. Uh, President Biden was pushing our European partners to put more pressure on China, and our European partners demurred a bit, uh, hoping for greater support from the U.S. to take on on Vladimir Putin and, and Russia. Uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative targets Asia as a middle point in the Chinese effort to reach European markets, primarily European markets, by both sea lanes and land routes, and we've seen only minor pushback from the EU lately against China's economic plans. Uh, how do you see this situation playing out over the next three to five years?
0: Well, you're exactly right. Um, the U.S. has been really working with its allies in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe uh, to help build a more united uh, allied uh, front uh, towards China, and it's been difficult for Europe, quite frankly. Europe is evolving in their policy, just as we evolved. I mean, you do have to remember it was just a couple of years ago that the United States was uh, seeing, you know, China as, you know, you know, hopefully a partner that we could manage China's rise in a peaceful way. Well, that's not the case nope. anymore, and uh, Europe has also been trying to manage a spectrum of, of Chinese behavior. So the EU's policy is looking at China as a partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. Well, that covers the landscape, right? It's <laughs> right. uh, got your bases covered there. Yeah. Uh, we, of course, are tipping that spectrum much more on the systemic rival part. Uh, Europe does not want to get caught between the United States and China. They want to be left out of it, and they want to continue to trade freely with both. That is sort of Europe's perfect Right position. That is the world they may want, but that is not the world that they have. And <laughs> um, you know, increasingly, um, and the tactics were were probably a little self defeating. But I, you know, I can credit to the trump administration they really pressed our allies and i'm thinking in particular the united kingdom mm-hmm. um that had a, a policy of a golden era with china i mean it was just extraordinary in, in their attempts to woo chinese investment uh in the uk and and strengthen that relationship they have completely done a, a, a 180 uh, of course the, the 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 tragic uh situation we see in hong kong and china's mm-hmm. basically ripping up of the of the basic law that was negotiated with the uk uh, that has certainly helped and promoted that but our our strongest allies and partners realize china is a risk economically uh, from an intelligence perspective and they understand that uh, china's behavior in the south china sea and violating international maritime norms it doesn't, you know, that that impacts far beyond just the South or the East uh, China Sea. So uh, we we have we see this awakening in Europe, and it is, it, we are to encourage it. Uh, investment screening, trying to deal with Chinese overcapacity, trying to find alternatives from uh, Huawei and 5G. But it's a work in progress, and and I think the important thing to note is that. Europe, particularly Germany, you know, the most important European economy is very reliant on China's uh, market, particularly for their automotive sector. Right, and so this is why you saw German Chancellor Angela Merkel. You know, huge reluctance uh, to to use those strong words because the last time the EU placed sanctions on on China for their uh, for their actions in uh, Xinjiang in the, uh, the Uyghur um, human rights violations, uh, China sanctioned EU officials, members of the European Parliament. They really smacked the european union quite hard which in turn uh pretty much stopped the the u.s eu's comprehensive agreement on investment so you see that on the one hand the eu wants this trade relationship they want market access and reciprocity but at the same time they are getting hit with wolf warrior diplomacy uh, smacked with sanctions so in some ways i think if the united states can work well and collaboratively with our allies to keep moving them in the right direction slowly slowly but get them moving and then china's behavior quite frankly is just helping us because it's so outrageous that even our european allies are going okay wait a minute that's not what we want but but they don't want to get caught in the middle and we just have to continue to reinforce they they can't sit on the sidelines. Yeah. They, are a, they are a democracy. They ascribe to international law and human rights, norms, and values. You don't sit on the sideline. you got to get off. You get in the pitch. Let's start working together. And let's hope China can can alter its behavior. I don't know if they will, but I, I think they'll, they're more likely to if they see a united front, which is what they're trying to break apart because they know that's pretty powerful. Yeah.
1: Uh, so let's, uh, if we could, let's let's shift to, to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, what we all know as, as NATO. Uh, and I think you're probably, we're very lucky to have, have you on the show to, to sort of discuss this nuance between uh, EU defense policy, European Union defense policy, and, and current NATO policies, which are not actually totally aligned. <laughs> they used to be pretty well aligned, but I think uh, as a result of the last four years, there's been a shift. Now, h- how would you... How would you frame that? What are the differences right now between EU security or defense policy and and NATO uh, mutual uh, alliance uh, treaty policies?
0: Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. And it's absolutely understandable that everyone's confused because 22 countries are both members of NATO (laughs) and of the European Union. But yet we're talking about very different things. But it's the same forces that will be applied or the same military capabilities that they have. So I can totally understand why that's confusing to everyone. So let's start with NATO because that's the most important. NATO is, uh, you know, the premier security alliance for europe that is very clear yeah the european union cannot replicate it um and why would you uh (laughs) it, it it works and because the united states is the key pillar the anchor of that alliance and and you know its focus is collective security and defense of its 30 members that's what it does now the nato summit was interesting because it really sort of like csis really was starting to expand. Security and thinking about China, and that's quite new for NATO. But they, this is this is where this, this awesome political military alliance has to stay focused on uh, protecting its members, but at the same time be more politically aware and engaged in all of these cross-cutting security challenges. And certainly for the United States, as China is a growing security strategy. By its nature, NATO uh, is going to be interested and, and participating in that conversation. Now, the European Union does, though, uh, certainly have um, uh, a growing role to play in enhancing uh, Europe's security. And it's really in all the soft security stuff uh as we have seen over the last five to six years with either russian or chinese malign influence disinformation you know the the infiltration of political parties this coercive tactics this is where the european union plays a massive mm-hmm. role it's their role to work uh and make sure that uh uh, EU laws are, are tight and rigorous uh, that they don't allow corruption that they're fighting uh, against these maligned forces so we want them to be a strong pillar but NATO also needs the EU for something as basic as military mobilization so for all of you Cold War warriors out there that remember reforger exercises these right. were the exercises that US did in the Cold War which which practice rapidly mobilizing us across Europe so we're a dated version of that. We call Defender Exercises. And you know what? We have to rely on Europe's commercial infrastructure, its rails, its roads, its ports, its bridges. Um, that's just the basic stuff. That doesn't fall within NATO. That falls within the the transportation, comm- all the individual member states. So that's why it's really important for NATO and European Union to work together across range that that wide range of, of of issues now if the european union wants to create uh some uh defense identity that can help counter terrorist activities in the sahel in africa try to you know enhance uh border protection A cure, it just can't duplicate uh, what NATO is doing, that is ridiculous because uh, we're talking about you know, duplicating the same forces. I'm, I'm actually encouraged on the NATO-EU cooperation. I think if we can strengthen what the EU needs to do and does best and we keep strengthening what NATO does best and we make sure they're talking to one another, I think we're good. Um, but there's always going to be challenges here because of Turkey. Uh, Turkey is a member of NATO but not right. a member of the European Union. And they like to make sure that the European Union is not going to be able to do too much in, in defense. And the same thing can be said about the Republic of Cyprus, that right. is a member of the European <laughs> Union but not a member of NATO. So, uh, there's always going to be limitations simply because we don't have membership alignment that will allow too much uh, togetherness between the NATO between NATO and the European Union. But I'm a little less. Um, about that what fusses me uh, is when we hear European leaders talking about strategic autonomy or mm. technological sovereignty and, and you know that's an instinct again, not getting caught in the crossfire between the United States and Russia or the United States and China, wanting this independent European posture. Um, As I said, I understand the rhetorical value of that, but as I look at European military capabilities and the challenge set we face, why in the world would you go along something separately? You'll be weaker. Uh, Why can't you join together with as many countries as possible to be as strong uh, and resilient uh, as possible, and uh, let's hope that the, the autonomy, the strategic autonomy talk, uh, sort of turns into, you know, more strategic alliances right. to help meet today's challenges.
1: Yeah, that uh, that, that political talk of, uh, of nationalism uh, ra- rarely goes well in the long run. <laughs>
0: exactly. We know that too well
1: as well. <laughs> so, Heather Conley, we just have a, a few minutes left. Uh, what else do you think the American listeners here should know about EU and NATO defense policy or or maybe something that we haven't covered uh, much in our discussions today. You did bring up Turkey. I could tell our audience that we could spend an entire hour talking about Turkey and the role that Turkey plays as a crossroads uh, between two critically strategic areas in the world. Uh, But, Heather, from your perspective, what else do you think we should do? Talking about Turkey. Yeah, what else should we talk about today?
0: Yeah, well, uh, two things I'll raise. Turkey, very briefly, of course, President Biden uh, met with his counterpart, Turkish President uh, Erdogan, on the margins of the NATO summit. You know, we have a great deal of concern about the strategic direction of Turkey. Turkey purchased um, a Russian missile defense system, the S-400s. That is not a smart policy approach for a NATO ally to be (laughs) buying the equipment of a NATO adversary. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't seem like there was much of a breakthrough in that. Meeting, But Turkey plays an enormously uh, important role, and its foreign and security policy has certainly been quite aggressive regionally, whether that's um, militarily intervening in Syria, North uh, northern Iraq, uh, Libya, uh, most recently uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Right. Um, so we definitely have a big challenge there. The other thing we, we forgot to mention, uh, and it's both a challenge and an opportunity, is the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union. Yes. So I think what we're seeing um, is a a UK that wants to play a greater role in NATO. So keep your eye on, you know, increased... Uh, british activity which is most welcome Uh, their recent integrated review which was their sort of 10-year security and defense review now that they have left the european union and can have that independent policy i think we saw a lot of goodness in that uh you know keeping a technological edge being more focused on the north atlantic uh arctic as you know i'm supportive of a, a more forward-leaning <laughs> posture there. I think we'll see more activity uh, in the Mediterranean. This is to be welcome. And they're also tilting towards the Indo-Pacific. So, uh, But at the same time, we are seeing, and this played out in the, the G7, uh, we're seeing real tensions between the United Kingdom and the European Union right. over Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, and that's not in America's interest, I assure you, to have the, it, it's two, you know, very important allies, the UK and, of course, the force of the European Union, fighting each other and not coming together to fight common challenges. So that's something we are keeping a close eye on. Sometimes I feel like I'm going back to the future. <laughs> We're thinking about Northern Ireland, and you know, we don't want the troubles to return, but we've taken peace for granted a bit in that. De- department so i'm going to be busy john it's uh you know it's whether it's presidential trips or the world we've got a lot to watch so i'm glad you're watching it for us on your national security podcast
1: well heather we we have come to the end of our show sadly uh thank you for joining us today on national security this week
0: thank you for having me it's been great talking with you
1: Uh, So, everyone, that closes out this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Frango and Laswell in downtown Northfield is the law office you